This is Docs in the Box podcast. A podcast about medicine, muscles, and more through the eyes of two physiatrists. I'm Dr. Amy West. And I'm Dr. Matthew Cowling. Docs in the Box podcast, episode 31, Dr. David Johnson. Welcome. Good morning, Amy and Matt. Uh, pleasure to be on the podcast. It's been a long time. I've been been uh, following you guys for a long time. When was the last time we met? 2018, I think. 2018, yeah. Something like that, yeah. Um, I remember that because I jumped on the assault bike with Matt and I, I got him by a few calories. My foot slipped. You know Matt, Matt's been uh, talking about that quite a bit. I haven't I forgotten. I've, I've been training for the rematch for like five years now. I know. I know. <laughs> well, you got me on the thruster for sure this year in the Open. Oh my God! Yeah, but that's that's what, it. That's not my only victory. What, what was your pounds? Let me let me work out the difference. What was your pounds on the thruster? I put up two forty five. Two forty five pounds. I'm okay. just googling that into kilograms because we use we use kilograms in the rest of the world, you know. Yeah, we use oh, yeah. freedom units here. <laughs> freedom units is what we call them over here. Freedom units. Okay, that's pretty decent, Matt. 111 kilograms. I tried to use the kilo plates and I had to switch them out because I was not doing math in that short period of time. What'd you end up getting yeah. there? Oh, gosh. I only got 85, but I hit 80 easily. And then um, and then I went for 92 and a half. Uh, and then that was just too big a jump. And then, I, the, okay, that's right. I'll go for 90 because I'd done 90 a little while earlier. And mm. I thought I should be able to get 90. And a few of my mates got 90 in the gym. Mm. Um, and, and, but then I was just what exhausted and I, and I had to, I had about 15 seconds left. I was like, shit, I'm going to get a zero here. Um, <laughs> You're so like, I, I, something I, up. Yeah. And I had to sort of oh. accept 85, but it was a strategic error. Oh. I was like, I hit 173. I so I don't know what that is in kilos, but. 173. Yeah. yeah. Let me That's decent. Did you like that workout? I did. I did like that one. There was no high yeah, school gymnastic movement. 70, 78 kilos. Nice. Sweet. nice. That's, take it. That would have been that would have been one of the top lifts in our in our box. Uh, nice for the girls. Yeah, yeah. There's an actual about about you know cheating there. <laughs> um, um, so you've been well. Yeah. So. David, tell us, t- tell the listeners more about yourself because you've got a very unique setup where you are, uh, neuro neurosurgeon slash CrossFit enthusiast, and you're able to put both of those together in your clinic. So, tell yeah. tell everybody I, kind of I, what you do and how you do it. I tend to put the in the in the hierarchy of importance. I tend to put the neurosurgery last. <laughs> nice. Um, uh, so, you know, Olympic weightlifting coach, um, uh, CrossFit level two, um, functional movement therapist, um, LCHF nutrition advisor, educator, um, and then neurosurgery is my day job. But in terms of the benefit that um, my sort of uh, interests and passions lie, wh- where they lie, the neurosurgery is probably the least important. Okay. Um, it's all about those pillars of health and the pillars of health being uh, nutrition, 
quality nutrition, quality movement, the other two pillars, stress management and quality sleep. I sort of synthesized down to four four main pillars of health. So that's where uh, that's where we can be making the the most impact on global health and the health of the people in our in our community as 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 doctors um in terms of volumes of people and economic health dollars um spent it's 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 all it's all going to chronic disease like i think i read somewhere recently um about 25% or um yeah 15 to 20% of the health of total health uh total government spending is spent on health um and 90% of that is spent on chronic disease which is entirely preventable you know and and as our as we've sort of uh, engaged with uh, Greg Glassman in the past you know he talks about that that um metaphor of uh, lifeguards and swim coaches and um our health industry is just so heavily skewed towards uh training us to be um lifeguards and trying to salvage people when they're drowning as opposed to being good swim coaches and stopping people from um, becoming sick in the first place. And it's really profoundly simple to stop this epidemic of chronic disease. Um, and, and in our area, as you're, you guys are physiatrists, um, I work in spine health you know, musculoskeletal disease is massive. It's a huge, it's only, it's just a tad behind coronary heart disease in terms of disability adjusted life years and um, disease burden. And in my industry, back pain makes up a massive, massive part of that musculoskeletal component. Um, so that's that's sort of where I focus my attention is teaching people, teaching my patients how to prevent um, uh, the development of spine-related pain. Um, and my job as a surgeon primarily is to prevent people from needing surgery. We're not doing our job correctly if, if people end up needing surgery. And a lot of surgeons will just say, look, you don't need surgery now come back and see me in five years and then you'll probably be bad enough and then we'll do the operation. We'll do a fusion then or a disc replacement or we'll decompress the spinal cord and nerves in five years time. It's not bad enough at the moment, but they don't give them the advice of, well, this is how you're going to prevent the need to have surgery. And, um, and hence the development of functional movement training center, functional movement therapy, um, the program that we run in our center called NeuroHab, uh, which is all about training people to uh, be proficient at moving in their daily life activities, regardless of whether it's a, a, a trivial task or a very physically demanding task. You still need to move well. And, and you guys will be fully aware that, you know, when you're shifting heavy barbells, dumbbells, kettlebells, we always think about um movement technique that just needs to spread across to daily life activities and and one of my sayings is that we're all weightlifters like it or not we are all weightlifters we're moving our body and our body 50 percent of our body weight is above our belt line 
So grandma is a weightlifter. Um, so we may as well be good at it and, and uh, be good at what I refer to as the sport of life because we're all playing the sport of life. If you get out of bed in the morning, you're playing the sport of life and be good at it. Um, Absolutely. So those are the simple philosophies behind what I do. I think that, you know, Amy and I, probably the number one, you know, thing that we treat is back pain, right? And so cool. um, and when I think of like a neurosurgeon, right, the thing that comes to my mind is right surgery, obviously, right? When patients get to that point. So going into neurosurgery, uh, how did you get to the, arrive at the conclusions that you're at now? Have you always felt this way or was no, it through your training? Yeah. No, I was just another, <clears throat> I was just another uh, cog in the wheel cog in the industry wheel um just uh not really making a difference at all um you know when people come to see a neurosurgeon they're usually you know pretty end stage they're, they're at the end of the line they've they've done the pilates they've done the exercise phys the core strengthening they've done all of the different types of physical therapies that, that you guys will be fully aware of um and they'll be on the pain medications. They'll be suffering. They'll have made massive lifestyle restrictions, of course. You know, that's how people deal with their pain. I call that Oprah therapy. Um, they just sit on the couch and watch Oprah, which is a miserable existence. They, they stop working. Um, they don't play with their kids anymore. They have relationship breakdowns. They become addicted to S8 or, you know, opioid analgesia. Um, and then the industry says, oh, you, you, you might need to go and see the surgeon now because you're so bad that uh, surely there's, there's something serious going wrong and you, you might need an operation. And so I'll get the patient, you know, years down the track, down the journey of their, 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 their pain. Um, and one of the first questions that you ask patients is, what's the diagnosis? What's the diagnosis? Oh, I've got a bulging disc. Um, I've got arthritis. That's not a diagnosis. That's a symptom. Patients, patients are never actually given infrequently, uh, patients ever given the, uh, the diagnosis for their symptoms because back pain in the industry, the word back pain is used interchangeably as diagnosis and symptom. And that's just not right. Pain is a symptom. Something causes pain. Um, and so, you know, about mid 2015, uh, yeah, around 2015, I kind of like was putting this all together in my mind because it didn't sit well with me that that's how the paradigm was, was operating. And I, I sort of coined the term movement dysfunction as the disease process. Movement dysfunction is the disease. That is the diagnosis. And downstream from that, is the myriad of structural and clinical symptoms that people describe. So they describe a, a, a disc injury or an annular tear, or they describe a facet arthritis, or they describe spinal stenosis or sacroiliac joint pain. All of those itises um, that we are familiar with are, are downstream symptoms of movement dysfunction. And the industry and my education and my training, my specialty training for, you know, countless years did not 
teach me about the disease of movement dysfunction. It told me, it taught me how to do a fusion. It taught me how to do a disc replacement. It taught me how to do a decompression of the nerves, but it didn't educate me about how to prevent movement dysfunction. And it was just serendipitous that um, I developed an interest in Olympic weightlifting and, and, um, and of course, then CrossFit. Uh, and then once you go to a CrossFit class and do Olympic weightlifting training every day, your brain is entirely switched on into movement technique, movement technique. And so then I said, well, okay, I've got this disease called movement dysfunction. Movement therapy is the, the default paradigm that the industry should be delivering to the community. Um, and that's what I spoke about at the CrossFit, CrossFit Health Summit in 2018 was functional movement therapy. And I, I was trying to get the message across to Greg and, and CrossFit Health and really all of the affiliates around the world. I think there's like what we might be 10 to 15,000 affiliates around the world. What an amazing resource of services that could teach you know, society around the world about movement proficiency and, and functional movement therapy as a default paradigm to address one of the leading causes of pain and disability in the world. Just teach people how to move well. And you've, you have, we have, that paradigm will solve a massive chunk of the chronic disease burden. It's that simple. Yeah, simple. you bring up some interesting points. One in that about thinking about chronic disease, we often think about it as um, things like diabetes and hypertension, et cetera. But certainly back pain is sort of the, the chronic disease of the musculoskeletal system. You know, poll 100 people with diabetes and probably 99 of them have back pain, right? So, um, but it's yeah. often kind of forgotten. The metabolic in that, in the, side, isn't it? Yeah, the physical kind of piece of it is often forgotten when people address chronic disease. Um, but what would you, you know, something that comes up quite a bit is when we talk about crossfitting and even weightlifting, um, the default, especially amongst medical providers, is a dangerous thing. It injures people. It's a statement that makes me crazy. I spend a lot of time talking about, but, you know, and here you are saying literally the exact opposite, that this is the key to preventing disability and, and further, you know, deterioration of the musculoskeletal system. So have you encountered that, you know, that sentiment in your, in your area and how do you combat that, especially to, you know, the higher ups in the medical system who are paying for this, you know? Yeah. Well, look, yeah, there's a, there's a fair bit of resistance to, um, there's a fair bit of resistance to change. Um, and from the metabolic side of things, you know, there's, there's, there's strong parallels between chronic metabolic disease and insulin resistance um, and the musculoskeletal physical diseases um, because the industry just is not really willing to give up those conflicts of interest. Uh, you know, if, you, if you're talking about diabetes and high blood pressure and um, uh, obesity, um, ischemic heart disease and that type of stuff, you know, that's the parallels are pretty pretty similar you you've just got to educate people how to maintain their insulin sensitivity and that's not that difficult to do if you if you if you educate people about how to reduce carbohydrate consumption they very quickly restore their insulin sensitivity um, but that flies in the face of a lot of commercial interest um, because a lot of money is is uh, received 
through selling processed foods and processed foods are typically high in carbohydrate you know just about anything that comes in a box and and sits in your pantry um is going to be high in carbohydrate um protein and fat uh needs to be in the fridge okay it's um it's not as commercially lucrative uh, as refined carbohydrates and processed food. So um, the same goes with musculoskeletal. The industry doesn't really understand, like most, most physiotherapists and, and physical therapists are not actually um, very cognizant of movement proficiency as a skill set so if they are not trained in the same way that i wasn't trained then then they're not going to really be open to or be able to have the skill set to to train their patients in that in that regard either um and and we we kind of need to open up the the curriculum the 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 training and education of our future physical therapists to movement proficiency and we need to define that define that for them without a without a definition and consistent language there's still a lot of confusion a lot of confusion out there what does functional movement mean what does it mean to move well how do you know how do we define moving well you know in regards to the to, to the lumbar pelvic spine anyway um but that that we have defined that and um you know, we're trying to we're trying to teach that more broadly now since the development of our own college of functional movement clinicians, which I would encourage anyone who works in the industry, whether you're a personal trainer, whether you're a chiropractor, whether you're a you know massage therapist, um, if you understand lifting technique if you if you enjoy going to the gym and you're a crossfitter or you're in in you know if, you, if you've got calluses on your hands and you know how to throw heavy things around <laughs> then you have the skill set to actually help people with um musculoskeletal pain and you can do that by joining our collaboration because we are the only we're the only collaboration in the world that is inviting people um to become members as movement clinicians and i specifically use the word clinicians because when we use the word clinicians it means that we have a therapeutic relationship with our with our our patients um, versus a personal trainer who has a who may refer to the person as a client okay because i you're a client of mine if i'm trying to make you fitter and stronger and increase your 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 um, functional capacity you don't have a clinical condition, but if you have a skill set of knowing how to transfer movement proficiency to someone who has a condition of back pain, then they are now your patient, and you are you are then by definition a clinician. Okay, so that's why we that's why we talked about um, that's why we call the college the the College of Functional Movement Clinicians because there's many many people out there. Um, who can deliver a clinical service right all of my all of my coaches okay crossfit coaches level one level two crossfit coaches are also delivering movement therapy to patients okay? they, 
their patients when they are afflicted by disease. Um, as time goes on and they begin to move well as default, they transition from being a patient to a normal, healthy person to being an athlete. And now they can call themselves a crossfitter. Um, so now it's a client, okay, because they no longer have a clinical relationship with that person. But CrossFit coaches um, have the skill set and many other disciplines as well. Uh, you know, I work with strength um, powerlifters. Um, I work with, uh, you know, strong men. Uh, and they're all now able to work as clinicians. But we have to, you know, we have to create the syllabus um, and the program that allows them to follow uh, to then you know transition patients from from being afflicted by pain and disability into becoming athletes and that's that's the wonderful thing that's what i love about my box is that i'll be i'll be doing we did dt last night <laughs> and i look around the room i look around the room and there's my previous i, I can see in the back corner there's a patient of mine that, I, that was in my waiting room two years ago and now he's doing dt you know, it might not be the prescribed 70 kilogram weight for males or 155 pounds for males, but, it, you know, it might be an empty barbell, but he or she is still getting the same stimulus that I'm getting doing it at 155 or 70 kilograms, which is just, it's just fantastic to see that transition simply by applying these, this paradigm of, of, movement therapy for movement dysfunction it's incredibly powerful because you got to remember the patients that we're fixing up are the chronic pain patients they're the ones who've had pain for years um, a, a lot of the industry sort of thinks that they're doing a great job because they can resolve acute pain you know say oh, i've had back pain for one week i come and do this um and oh you got better did you wonderful that's an association if they receive cupping or whatever, whatever therapy that is delivered for acute pain, that doesn't actually mean that the therapy implemented made the acute pain better because acute pain will often get better naturally. You could sprinkle tea leaves on the person's back and acute pain will often get better. We know that. We know that from the studies that, that acute back pain, 70% of patients get better within three weeks. Okay. So if people with acute pain go and receive an intervention, um, you can't be sure that that intervention actually was causative for that improvement, right? But when you have patients with 10 years of back pain, um, disability and lifestyle maladaptations, and you can fix that up with a paradigm, there is a extremely high likelihood that the intervention delivered is causative for that improvement. Okay, and then you can back that up. You can back that association or observation up with a randomized control trial, and that's the data that we also now have. We have we have randomized control trial data, um, uh, or control trial data uh, that shows movement therapy makes a massive difference. It's a fifty percent improvement in outcomes after eight weeks of movement therapy for, for chronic back pain. So, you know, I have no doubt in my mind, zero doubt in my mind that, that movement therapy is the, the ideal treatment for movement dysfunction. 
and movement dysfunction is the cause of um, chronic musculoskeletal pain symptoms. Did you meet a lot of resistance from patients at all when you started this? So let's say a patient came to your office expecting uh, maybe surgery. How did you go about convincing them to start the program and what barriers did you run into? Yeah, great question. Uh, that, is, that is one of the constant challenges, Matt. That is one of the constant challenges is that patients come to see me after years of pain. Um, uh, and the first half of the consultation, you know, most of my consultations go for about 40 to 45 minutes. Um, I'm constantly running behind in my clinic because the first half of the consultation has to be reversing all the misinformation. Okay, I've got to, I've got to untangle all the nonsense that they've been told. You know, they they're told that they've got pain because they are sedentary or that they are too physical. You know, they, you know, one minute they're they're a bank manager who sits on his bum all day, or the next minute they're um they're a labourer who's working too hard. So you know, what is it? You, 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 or the, or one person says that I'm I'm too I'm overweight. That's why I've got back pain. And the next person that walks in is is skinny you know, or hypermobility, or I'm, I'm old, I'm getting older, I'm, I'm 50. Um, and then the next person that walks in is 20. So you can see that it's, it's, a, it's a whole heap of pseudoscience that the industry is assigning as the cause for people's pain. They are not seeing the wood from the trees. Um, and all they have to do is go, okay, See that mobile phone on the coffee table over there? Go and pick that up. Go and pick that up and show me how you pick it up. And, and if, we've, if we've got the right training, we, okay, there's movement dysfunction. You are displaying or expressing uh, intralumbar flexion. You are displaying deactivated posterior kinetic chain. You are losing uh, neutral spine positions when you bend over. You are loading your knees, okay? you have, um, you're breaching proficiency limited range of motion. Okay. So you're doing tasks because you have to do the tasks. And in order to do the task, you're doing it with poor movement proficiency. And if we just go, okay, that, that that's, that's clear as crystal that you don't know how to move well during your 5,000 bends per day, because we know that in an average modern lifestyle, a individual will bend about 5,000 times a day. Okay. And if you, if you are expressing intralumbar flexion across the L4, 5, L5, S1 motion segment, guess what's going to happen to that, that, um, annular, uh, cartilage, uh, that fibrocartilage and the, um, the nucleus, it's going to degrade because our healing potential cannot keep up with the insults. Okay. Um, and, and what you need to do is just re-educate them about movement. So, so there's a lot of misinformation um, and patients do not understand the difference between a functional intervention and like movement therapy versus exercise because they think that they've done it. They've already had 50 to 100 sessions with a physical therapist to strengthen their core. And the first thing that we have to convey to the patient is that no matter how strong you are and how strong your core is, that does not mandate skill. Okay, you can have a six pack and you can still be clumsy and poorly coordinated 
when it comes to bending in daily in, in activities of daily living. Um, so I see lots of high-level CrossFitters as well. I see lots of professional athletes who lift their shirt up for me and show me their six-pack, and they say that the the physical therapist said I've got to do more core strength. So you know they're trying to trans, they're trying to make someone who has nine out of ten core strength to ten out of ten. That's zero bang for your buck. That's a diminishing return intervention versus their movement proficiency is one out of ten. And if we just bump that movement proficiency up to say eight out of 10, they might not have the best clean in the world. They might not have the best snatch or the best overhead squat, but they just start to move and bend with hip centric rotation, neutral spine positions, posterior kinetic chain powered movement. That is a massive bang for your buck intervention. You know, that's like, that's like hitting the nail that's sticking up out of the floorboard, hit that nail down. That's a massive bang for your buck intervention. And, um, and what that ends up doing is it reduces biomechanical stress, it reduces biological inflammation, it reduces accelerated structural deterioration. Right? Because that's what, that's what ultimately causes people to have premature pain at the age of 20, 30, 40, 50, is accelerated structural change and, 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 and inflammation. So yes, it is hard to get people to, um, to make that leap because they kind of think that they've done everything. And the only thing that they haven't done is some highly invasive surgical procedure. You know, they haven't got a scar on their back yet. So they've done everything else in their mind. The industry's delivered everything else to them. The only thing that's missing is a scar on their back. And so they, some people actually get offended that, that you're not going to do an operation for them. Right? Because I, I can't, ethically and morally, I can't, offer someone an operation when I know that they have a very, very high chance of improving and becoming athletic again, a domestic athlete, um, simply by addressing their movement dysfunction. Yeah. It's very hard for me. I'm, I'm actually known in, in our community as the surgeon who uh, has a very high bar to offer surgery. And, and that's why I get a lot of patients referred to me because the GPs know. And the GPs, the general practitioners know how many patients have been sent off for surgery and come back with persistent pain after surgery? Okay. And, the, and you guys would see a lot of that. The industry refers to that as failed back pain surgery syndrome. You see hundreds, you see people like that every single day. Um, but in actual fact, that also reflects poor post-operative rehabilitation as well. Um, because the surgeon has done a fusion or a disc replacement for a disc that may be unstable. Um, the surgery has gone fairly smoothly, no technical problems. Um, but if the patient doesn't reverse the underlying movement dysfunction that created the unhealthy disc in the first place, what is naturally then going to happen to that patient? They are going to get what's referred to as adjacent segment disease. Okay, you've heard of adjacent segment disease, and that's where the next segment is blamed as the new pain generator one or two years later. Um, and that can be prevented by going back to the basics, teaching them about the definition of movement proficiency, back to understanding about neutral spine positions, regenerating the coordination of activation of the multivitous muscle, which we all know is a critically important muscle in terms of intersegmental stability. You guys, do you guys talk to your patients about multivitous? 
Yeah, it's so important. And have a look at MRIs, guys. When you go to work today or tomorrow, um, pull out the patient's MRI, scroll down to the lower lumbar segments of someone with back pain, L45, L5S1, and have a look at the gaping atrophy, the gaping fatty atrophy around where the multifidus muscle should be healthy. And if you see that, you can confidently say to the patient, you're not moving well. You are not moving well. Because when you move well, multifidus is healthy. Okay. And when multifidus is healthy, you mitigate micro instability of the lower lumbar motion segments. And if you mitigate micro instability of the lower lumbar motion segments, it's a little bit like that patient has a suit of armor around their spine, uh, which of course then prevents them getting biomechanical stress and biological inflammation. Um, so we, we, we restore multivitous function by teaching people to hip hinge, by teaching people to deadlift, by teaching people to how to swing a kettlebell. Okay. In the early stages, it may only be a plastic, plastic kettlebell. Okay. It might be a broomstick, which weighs, you know, half half a kilogram or less um but it's still getting the motor pattern right it's get, still getting the motor pattern and now and when you say that uh, patients with um so if a patient comes in and, and they're not moving properly and they have multifidus atrophy we talked a, a bit about core strengthening and i think sometimes that's yeah. a part that's missed right the erector spinae and multifidus so at what point yeah. would you start targeting though i mean it's obviously in your comprehensive program right but it's something that I've seen overlooked by clinicians several times. So when we talk about core strengthening, would you lump those into core strengthening generally? Okay. I, I, um, there's a bit of noise outside. Hang on a sec. Um, I prefer the term, Matt, and I'd, I'd really encourage you to use the term core coordination. Okay, sure. Yeah. Core coordination is mandatory core strengthening is discretionary okay um and and i i justify that based on the fact that if you want to climb mount everest if that's a goal of yours you have to have both you have to have core coordination and core strength but if you just want to go to work and you're a back pain patient and you're a teacher or an accountant or a mechanic or whatever then you have to it's mandatory to have core coordination once you get rid of your back pain symptoms and you want to increase functional capacity now i develop a, 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 a elevation of my core strength sure, because okay. in order to be in order to gain functional capacity yes i have to be stronger okay so functional capacity comes later um uh, but most people who go to a therapist are not saying, Hey, I want to be strong and athletic. They are going to the therapist saying, I've got back pain. Right? So our primary objective is to get that person out of pain and disability. Once we've done that, we then now, what do you want to do now? Oh, I want to go mountain biking. I want to go, you know, surfing. Okay. Surfing and mountain biking has a functional capacity that exceeds your current uh, sorry, surfing and mountain biking has a functional demand that exceeds your current functional capacity. 
if you want to do those physically demanding activities, I have to then increase your strength. And now I do core strengthening, okay. which, is where, which is where patients transition from our program. Clinical program, Neurohab, healthy person, capacity building, CrossFit. That's it. So core coordination is mandatory. Core strength is, is discretionary. And it's wonderful to have good core strength because you can do, you know, you can do lots and lots of things after that. That's where quality of life comes back. Yeah. Um, um, people listening to this, uh, well, that, this all sounds great, but this would never work like in the States because, you know, surgeons are incentivized to operate. It, they get paid more to operate than to send them to any kind of therapy. They don't have 40 minutes to talk to someone about, you know, their lifestyle and their, and, and re-educate and all this stuff. So is it, is it, be, is it, are, and, and I don't know if you have reference for what things are like here in the, are, is just the Australian medical system That's easier to, to deal with this? Or is it that you personally are, you know, to do this, uh, you know, kind of not really thinking ultimately about, you know, things like, you know, insurance coverage and all this other stuff. Um, yep. or is, you know, what, uh, what's it like there? Cause it sounds like a magic place where this can happen. No, it's not, it's definitely not. And, and Amy, this is why this is the, I've been hitting my head against a brick brick wall for, you know, nearly, nearly 10 years now. Um, and, and this is the motivation for the college. This is the motivation to collaborate with people like yourselves. You guys are, our, uh, hopefully will be our international ambassadors talking about this. Um, and the College of Functional Movement Clinicians is, is an international collaboration. We, we have, you know, people from uh, around the world uh, collaborating with us and, and, and members. But we need to grow and we can only start to exert some influence if we become, you know, a, a significant force. Okay, so I want, I want the college to be able to influence guidelines. Okay, so there are often there are often guidelines that are in place for, okay, what is best practice for managing back pain? What is best practice for managing um, shoulder pain? Or, you know, the, the, all of these guidelines exist within the medical industry. But at the moment, there is not one sentence dedicated to the disease of movement dysfunction and movement therapy. Um, so it's just as bad here in Australia. It's just as bad here in Australia. Um, uh, and, pay, and surgeons alike, and I, I admit to being one of those surgeons that didn't understand the disease of movement dysfunction when I went through training. So I don't hold it against my colleagues who don't have a good concept of movement therapy and, and, and movement dysfunction because our training is very, very structure-focused. It's a highly structure-focused training. It is not function-focused. We don't know how to train people how to move better as a, as a spinal surgeon. Um, but when the spinal surgeon says to a patient, you don't need surgery, go back to the physical therapist, he's relying on the physical therapist to deliver something that is um, uh, evidence-based and effective. So, so the industry has to turn around and say, well, let's start to take accountability for the services that we do deliver from a physical therapy point of view. And if the 
statistics are pointing towards back pain being one of the most uh, burdensome conditions on the planet, we need to actually start taking accountability as a physical therapy industry as a whole and go, well, what are we doing? Why is this so bad? Why is it costing us so much money? Why are patients not recovering from their chronic pain and, and start to take accountability? And I think, I think a lot of the physical therapy industry doesn't take accountability for their intervention because it's very low potency. It's very low potency to do an adjustment on someone. It's very low potency to do a, a deep tissue release or to do some Pilates. Um, and so the industry kind of sneaks under the radar of accountability. Okay. Whereas when you do heart surgery, brain surgery, nuts and bolts into the spine surgery, it costs $50,000 per procedure. You can't escape accountability, right? Because it's a high potency, high expense, high risk intervention. And that industry is very accountable. Like we do audits every three months and we talk about all of our surgeries. We talk about all our infections. We talk about all of the, we talk about DVTs that occurred. We talk about urinary tract infections that occurred and we take accountability for all of those uh, complications, so to speak. But the physical therapy industry can deliver 100 sessions of physical therapy and Three years later, the patient is no better and, and there's no accountability. What happened to the, you just paid up to, you know, $100 per session, 100 times in two to three years for say a, a personal injury claim or a, a, a motor accident claim. And the patient is still, you know, left with severe pain and disability three years later and the person who delivered that therapy or the organization that delivered that therapy, no one even records that as a data point. Okay, so um, last night I was looking at my medical legal files because I, I do a lot of uh, expert testimonies for insurance companies. And um, in the file, it's, you know, it's a 500 page file and I get to see all of the interventions that have been delivered to patients, right? And so over, say, a three to five year period, someone will receive, on average, it's not, it's not uncommon, 100 interactions with the physical therapy. Okay, that can be physiotherapy, exercise physiology, chiropractic, acupuncture, whatever. And the patient's no better at the end of it. And every single person who's been involved in that patient's care has zero accountability for the outcome. Um, and... 99.9% .9 of the time in a 500 page file, there is not one description of movement therapy being delivered to that patient with back pain. Hence the college, hence why the College of Functional Movement Clinicians is so imperative and hence why we need to grow it and we need to get people who understand movement um, uh, to become members and we can then start to lobby to the association of, you know, say physiatrists or physiotherapists or chiropractors or the government guideline recommendations. And we can say, this is what we need to do guys. Um, because, uh, at the moment we're not, and at the moment we're failing and we should be taking account accountability for our failings. Can you talk a little bit about the study you're doing and what metrics you guys are using? 
the study. Well, I, I measure everyone's visual analog pain score. I measure everyone's Oswestry disability index. I measure everyone's neck disability index. Uh, I measure central sensitization inventory scores. Um, but the main one, you know, in my own private practice, which we get zero research funding for, we have zero grants. We are a full-time clinical practice. Okay. I'm in, in, I'm consulting most days. I'm in surgery one or two days a week. I get zero, zero funding from insurers. Um, so we, we just use uh, ODIs and we use pain scores. Okay. And we, we deliver our intervention and we measure our outcomes um, at two months uh, and six months. And on average, the Oswestry Disability Index score halves after about eight weeks. Okay. And our cohort of patients that are be commencing the program are biased to very bad outcomes because their ODIs are so high when they start. Sure. Their ODIs are very high. You know, when, when, you, when you walk into a physiotherapy studio or a, a chiropractic studio with a niggly back pain, your ODI is low. Like, it's, it's hardly recognizable. I've just got a back strain. Can I have a massage, right? But when you do functional movement therapy after being referred to a neurosurgeon, your ODI is often, you know, 25 to 30, 30 plus, which is reflective of quite severe disability. And, and, and pain scores in the order of seven to, you know, 10 out of 10. And you're on more than one uh, type of prescription pain medication. These are very damaged people. And even in this cohort of people that are biased towards poor outcomes, delivering movement therapy on average halves their pain and disability in eight weeks. So, um, so it's, it's, a, it's a very different cohort of patients. But but I don't get any research grants. You know, I don't have time to be to be getting money from insurance companies or the government. It takes hours and hours of work. So we just do this out of out of our own, you know, knowledge that um, that we have a bit of a little genie in the bottle to help people with back pain. And this year we're we're just branching out and collaborating with other people to teach them how to do it as well. We want to teach the world how to deliver movement therapy, and I think CrossFit. Uh, actually has the resources crossfit um and crossfitters and crossfit physicians other physicians like ourselves who know how to lift a barbell and who have calluses on their hands can propagate this message now it's bloody important it's really important um and i'm only i'm only so passionate about it because i know how powerful it is if i if i if i if it wasn't that great i wouldn't be sitting here you know, trying to promote the message. Um, there's no conflicts of interest. I have zero dollars to gain by this. It's like when I teach people about metabolic health. I'm not selling. I'm not selling a product. I'm not selling some supplement, or I'm not selling some some chocolate bar that's you know full of ketones or something. Um, you know, and and those are the types of things that help you understand whether someone's you know, trying to pull the wool over your eyes. Are they selling something? Are they, are we selling anything? No, we're not. We're trying to teach you to move well. Right. Um, uh, so so there's, we, we, there is no product. There is no product. And, and health, true health can't be bought. That's one of my other sayings is you cannot buy true health because it's free. Moving well and eating well is free. You know, I understand you have to go to the supermarket 
but in actual fact, when you break it down fundamentally, if you had a bow and arrow and you were out in the bushes, you could shoot a pig or catch a fish and eat it. It's free. No one has the rights over a fish. You can eat it. And, and true health is free. You cannot buy true health. Maybe you have to pay for your CrossFit membership or something, but, <laughs> but you know, ultimately that's about building capacity, right? You can move well in your house um, and, and maintain musculoskeletal health. Um, in terms of the nutrition stuff that you've been doing, so did you start um, really incorporating the nutrition component from uh, to treat a metabolic health standpoint, or did you notice there was a correlation between the way people were eating and their pain? Look, I haven't seen, um, in terms of musculoskeletal pain, I'm sure there are links between metabolic health and musculoskeletal pain. Um, but the big bang for your buck thing when it comes to musculoskeletal pain is biomechanics because the musculoskeletal system is, is there for movement, right? So it, so a failure of that musculoskeletal system by definition means a failure of movement. Um, the metabolic health side of things absolutely will be icing on the cake to reduce, uh, you know, metabolic inflammation, which of course then has effects on our soft tissues, you know, glycation of proteins and things like that, um, obviously compromises physical health too, and also, uh, mental health, um, uh, and, and other, you know, other conditions that compromise well-being can be improved by improving metabolic health. So during our program, we do little education sessions um, uh, and we, we, we do actually talk a little bit about um, the uh, quality nutrition within our, within our physical therapy program, movement therapy program. And, you know, because a lot of our patients do have other comorbidities. It's just, it's just part of life. You know, when 60% of the people, 60% of society is obese or overweight, you're going to pick up a lot of those patients who also have um, back pain as well. So yes, we do incorporate a little bit of education about insulin resistance, insulin resistance, and, and trying to see through the pseudoscience there as well. Like um, there's absolutely a lot to be gained by that. A lot of people, even when I do an operation on someone, you know, if they are, if they book for a surgery in a month's time, um, you know, just say they've got spinal stenosis or they've got a big disc prolapse pushing on their on their uh, nerve, and I've got a month or so waiting period to have surgery, um, I will just say to them, "Hey, over the next month, try to cut back carbohydrates. Keep your carbohydrates to sort of less than fifty grams a day. Um, just eat anything with a face and a tail. It's fine. Okay, if it's got a face and a tail, you can eat it. Or if it comes from something with a face and a tail, you can eat it." Think about that in the next month and you'll be metabolically much healthier and ready for your surgery. And it's incredible how many people come back and say, hey, I lost five kilograms since that last consultation. Because you can average lose one to two kilograms a week when you cut back carbohydrates to less than 50 grams a day. And then, of course, they continue because they, whoa, this is incredible. They continue to maintain that dietary lifestyle. And when I see them back again at the sort of two to three month mark, you don't even recognize them. You know, who are you? Where, where did you come from? You did surgery on me. Like, holy mackerel. And they say, yeah, I lost 10, 15 kilograms. Not uncommon. 
it is not uncommon now. And, and um, they said, well, I've been doing diets and milkshake this and all sorts of um, uh, weird things over the last uh, you know, 10 years and nothing has worked as effectively as just restoring my, my insulin sensitivity simply by reducing the burden on the pancreas. You know, I don't have to secrete insulin anymore or I'm just basal insulin. Yeah, just to just to keep glycolysis act, 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 ha, happening. Um, so yeah, that's that's massively um, valuable. Um, and we all know that we all know that from our own experiences too. Probably you know, like I used to be overweight. <clears throat> I used to be overweight. I had high blood pressure, and and I just stopped eating eating breakfast cereals. Stopped having orange juice, which I thought was healthy. I stopped having multi-grain you know oatmeal uh, wholemeal bread because that's high in carbohydrate now what do i have for breakfast well i have i may not have breakfast or i might have um a three-egg omelet bacon and eggs you know and then i often skip lunch because the three-egg omelet is satiating enough high in good fats um high in protein uh, and so you don't actually feel hungry at lunchtime so my next meal will be uh, 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 um, lamb chops after the workout, after the 5 p.m. workout. Uh, lamb chops, boom. That's just a recipe to maintain insulin sensitivity your whole life. Sure. Um, yeah. And have you carried that over um, into the hospital system at all? Uh, we tried. <laughs> we did. We did for a little while. We had. We had success for a little while where we started to um, uh, give patients the option of LCHF dietary choices. Yeah. Um, but again, you know, the, the, um, the, um, the food department of the hospital, ah, oh, this is, this is too hard. You know, I don't know how to make chicken and lamb chops and um, steak on their own tasty without potatoes and chips and, you know, pumpkin and starchy vegetables. So it's hard, but um, yeah, it was it, it was a bit it was a bit challenging when you're trying to educate patients in the hospital about low carb food, and then the tea lady comes around with um with cakes and biscuits and right. um and and chocolate milk. You know, like it's it's a double standard. You know, so it's 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 difficult. It's difficult, but yeah, we, we, we set up a, a, this is quite a while ago. We set up a, um, LCHF dietary, um, dietary menu option. Um, so we're doing our best on that front. Yeah. And, you know, so if, if there are, per, so even myself included, I'm saying, this is great. I want to have my patients do this. So what, what is, what does one do? Because, you know, we don't, as of right now, there aren't many therapists in the world who are sort of trained in your, with your program yeah. and how, would, if there's a therapist who wants to kind of further expand their education by, oh, you know, doing yes. what you do, then how, how do, how does, how does that happen right now? Or how do you envision that happening? Well, we, we, um, uh, last month, um, 26th of February was our very first um college of functional movement clinicians workshop okay so we had we had uh 21 people come from around australia um to do a a one-day workshop you know um to learn about functional movement therapy the theory 
and the practice of delivering functional movement therapy in your in your own studio. And so now, you know, in Sydney, I've got two functional movement therapists. In Melbourne, I have one functional movement therapist. Um, in North Queensland, I have one functional movement therapist now. So I, in one day, we trained 20 people to deliver functional movement therapy in Australia. Previously, it was effectively just us in Brisbane delivering it from one center. So, you know, we'll hopefully run workshops um, every few months, maybe once or, you know, maybe once or twice a year, and that'll then develop another 20 people. And those 20 people will tell, you know, how many hundreds or thousands of people and it's just got to grow like that. It's just got to grow organically. Um, maybe we'll do an international uh, conference. I have had I have had people reaching out from New Zealand. Um, uh, there's a guy I'm going to be talking to later on today who's in France, Philippe. He's one of the CrossFit physicians. He wants to learn about it. You know, um, you guys in America, um, we we just need to keep collaborating. That's it. Um, we. Uh, I have a, a social media Instagram page. Um, it's called Neurohab uh, underscore movement underscore therapy, Neurohab movement therapy. That's where I want to try to get people collaborating and talking about experiences. We have a website. We want to create our own journal. Okay. We want to create our own publications. We want to, um, we've got a head of research, uh, a fellow in New Zealand, and he's um, going to try to manage that side of things. But, Collectively, we have the we have the resources within our own community to really grow this college, um, and that's how that's how we're going to do it. It's got to be from grassroots. It's got to be a grassroots approach, um, and I think ultimately what we want to do is put our program. You know, the way what do we do with a patient on day one? What do we? So our program means that the patients come in two times a week, two times a week, and the and the classes are one hour, and the class might be five people, 10 people, it may be one-on-one. It just depends. Depends on the demand for that month. Uh, depends on how many patients have taken it up. Depends on how many patients I see in the, in the previous month. And so we generally run a group class um, and we have a program that goes, okay, on day one, you do this. On, on day two, you do this. And right through the, uh, the, the eight-week program, you're going to cover this information and you're going to relentlessly be pursued to move well as part of that eight weeks and i think one of the things we're going to try to do is is give that to our people who have done the training that one day course give that to people who have done the um have done the course and they can just follow that that program just like just like your your crossfit affiliate um follows some program you know they may follow the the matt fraser program or they may follow the bloody proven program or they may follow yeah it's a program that allows the 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 clinician to go okay this is what i do on day one and we just we just work through it um but it's got to be a clinician who's is relentlessly pursuing proficient movement so many parallels with crossfit you know virtuosity virtuosity in movement uh, being exceptionally being being extraordinary good at the ordinary that's these are the the parallels with crossfit um and, and that's one of the reasons why i love the sport because it's it's got so much potential to do so much good um 
so, you know, maybe one day you guys will be delivering a program in Harvard at your hospital. Let's do some move. Let's let's do a one day workshop and and train other physiatrists to not only be physiatrists, but to also have an extra feather in their cap of being a movement therapist too. Okay, so yeah. Pat Vellner's a yeah. chiropractic. Pat Vellner's a chiropractor. Why can't Pat Vellner also be a movement therapist? He's got the skill set. Okay, he'll see patients uh, in his studio, but he doesn't only need to do chiropractic therapy. He can also deliver movement therapy. Yeah, I know. Well, we so we've done a couple of talks in the past for different physiatry organizations, and I'll say that there was definitely a big um, interest. People were really excited about the idea and are looking forward to you know the educational piece on the back yeah. end. So hopefully, hopefully, um, hopefully, I'll give me an excuse to go to Australia. I'll come to your next, uh, your yes. next thing. Yep. Well, next time be pretty cool. Are- It'd be awesome to have you guys in the um, in the workshop. Do the workshop. Um, it's it's kind of thinking. I mean, if you think about it, like how would you, how would you go through teaching someone who is on oxycodone um, and who can't work uh, or kick a kick a football with their kids? How would you start to teach that patient how to move correctly? Yeah. And that's that's effectively what we need to do. And, and just because you do our workshop doesn't mean that as a as a movement therapist you can't have individuality as long as we all have the same outcomes as long as we all have the same objectives that's the key thing and that's why i said to our 20 you know 21 um attendees at our last conference at our last workshop you know create your own program as long as the, at the end of the day, you are able to make your patient understand hip-centric rotation, neutral spine maintenance, posterior kinetic chain powered movement, unloaded knee positions, proficiency limited range of motion. As long as they can express those five definitions, and they're very tight definitions, they're, uh, they're non-conjectural. As long as they can understand what that means in a practical sense of how they bend over to brush their teeth, how they bend over to empty the dishwasher, how they bend over to pick up the cat, then you have achieved, uh, you've delivered the the necessary skills to your patient. But uh, it takes a little while for a, a therapist to sort of understand how to do that and how to progress the patient um, through an eight-week course or a six-week course or, you know, because that's what it is. It's about a progression. It's progression. And often you need to, you often need to regress the patient right back to the fundamentals um, before you can then start to progress them. Okay, there's a saying regress regress to progress. And and patients go, What what am I doing? What's this broomstick that you're putting behind my back? Why? Why are you giving me a broomstick? Um uh, can I ask you when you guys deliver physiatry and you're in the studio, do you do you hand a broomstick to your patients? Negative. Negative. You need to. Does your CrossFit box have broomsticks? Oh, yeah. We have PVCs. PVC. PVCs. The PVC should be in every physical therapist studio who looks after back pain. I agree with every that. Every single studio. Okay. And um, you, did you say you do that? 
No, no. Well, we do that in the gym. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. But the way that our practice system is set up, no. You need to. You need to have a stack of PVC pipes in your studio so that you can teach someone how to hip hinge. It's the most powerful thing. Um, uh, and, and that's one of the, you know, it's one of the questions I ask a patient when they've had a hundred sessions of, of uh, physical therapy. How many times did you put a broomstick up against your back? And they go, they look at me like, what are you talking about? And I can just say, you have not received movement therapy, full stop. Right. You need to do movement therapy. If you have not had a PVC pipe up against your back and done a hip hinge, which is the same movement as a deadlift, and you're going to do that a thousand times a day, but you're just going to do it poorly, you have not received movement therapy. And that is why your movement dysfunction is still active. And that is why you still have chronic pain. Right. You know, you, you brought up an interesting point in past conversations about, you know, for physicians to ask, ask the physical therapist you work with and ask them to define what good movement is. And if they can't exactly. do that, then they're probably not then the right person to be treating it. So, yeah, that's exactly. Yep. We have to have very clear definitions, consistent language. That's what we expect out of science, right? You know, when we do the mathematical sciences or the biological sciences or the physiological sciences, um, we have very clear definitions on things, right? We, we know what uh, uh, A squared plus B squared equals C squared means, right? It's, it's global. It's a global language. The same with movement therapy. We need to have very clear, consistent language between clinicians, ourselves, um, and our patients so that the waters don't get muddied. Um, when I talk to a neurosurgeon on the other side of the world about a glioblastoma or about spondylolisthesis or about pedicle screw fixation or about decompression and bone grafts, we can talk to each other without a problem because we've been trained in this consistent language and this consistent definition. But when I talk to a, a, a chiropractor or a physiotherapist or a, a Pilates instructor or a yoga instructor, and we're talking about okay, let's, let's get this person moving well. It's, it's all nebulous. It's, it's completely muddy. Um, and, and we need to make movement therapy a, a consistent, defined, scientific method. I mean, I would also say that, that physicians, physicians also cannot describe what physicians. it is. We're, we're certainly not yes. immune to that. So, um, yes, 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 including yes, yes, the physiatrists. So, yes. I think one of the challenges is that we're all really busy. We're all really busy looking after patients. Um, and it's almost like there's these, you know, you've, you've got to be one of these people chasing grants to have the time to, to sort of implement this message, but we're actually really busy fixing people. <laughs> and the people who, the people who have the time and the money are the ones not fixing people. They've got, that's why they have time and money because they're not fixing people. Right. <laughs> It's this, it's this incredible irony, isn't it? You know, like you guys, you know, you guys are out there trying to fix people. I'm out there trying to fix people. I don't have time to get money and kind of need money. Uh, one of my missions is to try to have these conversations and these podcasts and, and these long conversations with insurance purse string holders, you know, the, the, the fund managers, the workers comp uh, managers, um, because if I can make them understand how to save billions, right? The they're a whole, oh, oh, tell me more, tell me more. Because at the moment, 
at the moment, they think that the big savings is to clamp down on surgery. They think that, oh, a spinal fusion costs $50,000. That's where we'll direct our attention, right? That's where we'll direct our attention to, to sort of saving $50,000 here and there on surgery. But when you actually look at the statistics, and I've looked up the Australian Bureau of Statistics, there are in Australia per year about 750 spinal fusions for back pain. Okay. Um, and how many interactions are there with physical therapy for back pain? There's a couple of million. Okay. So if you weigh up the costs of a couple of million people receiving low value rehabilitation, it blows the costs of surgery out of the window. Absolutely blows it out of the window. Um, uh, so, so the insurers and the purse string holders are, are actually having the wool pulled over their eyes by trying to make, be, trying to put more scrutiny on the surgical industry, which is already very accountable for outcomes, um, and the low potency rehabilitation industry is sort of getting allowed to sneak under the radar um and a lot of the a lot of the people who uh have the funding are promoting this message to insurers almost deflecting accountability away from themselves and redirecting the the scrutiny onto surgery and those type of high potency high expense in quotations uh interventions rather than go hey we're doing a pretty lousy job here, but don't worry about us because it only costs $50 for a massage, right? And so the insurers go, oh, only $50 for a massage. Oh, cool. We'll let you keep doing what you're doing. We'll, we'll try to stop the surgeon from doing a spinal fusion, right? But that's very cruel because once a patient has deteriorated to the point that they're unstable, the only thing that's going to allow that person to then go and do their movement therapy is a stability procedure okay it's a stability procedure that then allows them to go on and do their movement therapy and then truly recover from their disease of movement dysfunction and to have the industry restrict a surgeon from performing a spinal fusion which is a stepping stone to then being able to move well is very very cruel is very very cruel and it's sinister and it is sinister for the for the the people who are promoting this message um to insurers, but the insurers are listening to those guys. The insurers are listening to the guys, those guys because they see it as a big cost saving. They don't see it as, they don't see the cost savings coming from actually upskilling, uh, you know, enhancing and optimizing rehabilitation. And that's kind of one of the problems that we're faced with at the moment is the insurers are not listening to any other message because they just see a spinal fusion as being a $50,000 price tag and they want to minim minimize that. Right. I think it's a great yeah. point you bring up. And also, I mean, kind of going back to teaching movement therapy, um, you know, while you're seeing a patient, right? And for like Amy and I, we probably run, run pretty busy schedules where it's like, you know, patients in, patients out, we might be doing procedures um, and it becomes very difficult and we get to know the therapist, right? And you find therapists that you trust and you know are good and those are the people that you refer to. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, whose responsibility is it, right, to ensure that the patient's getting the best therapy and the best movement and that the therapist is trained in that. And yep. the thing you mentioned about outcomes is a huge deal because 
we'll send patients all the time that do 20 sessions of physical therapy and keep coming back. And it, you know, I think we need to think more about that. I love that idea. Yeah. 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 Well, just ask them when you, when they, when you, when they come back to see you for the checkup, you know, uh, especially if it's a person who has had chronic problems, it, it won't be as valid if they've only had acute problems, you know, for less than three months, most people will get better. But if, if you see someone who's had five years of, of pain and just ask them whether they received any movement therapy and, and ask them if they got a broomstick uh, up their spine and learned how to hip hinge. And that'll tell you what you need to then tell the, the physical therapist that you're, in, you're referring to. Right. Um, and you guys do interventional pain work. Do you do um, facet joint blocks and epidurals and those types of things? Not anymore, no. Yeah, so like, you know, those types of things are very common. Um, but in conjunction with doing those types of things, you must also teach the patient how to not need to have one in six months time. You know, if their facet joint is inflamed or their sacroiliac joint is inflamed and they get a, a, a corticosteroid injection into the joint, you've got to make sure that that patient understands why that joint became inflamed in the first place. It became inflamed because of the biomechanical stress. So even the pain physicians should be movement therapists. Right. Okay? Or the pain physicians should default by default. When I do this block, you are going to go and see this movement therapist after I do this block. Okay. If you don't go and see this movement therapist after I do this epidural block, I'm not going to do it. Okay. It's almost contractual. It's almost contractual. And when I, when I do a spinal fusion on my patients, I say, you need this spinal fusion, but guess what? It is not going to fix you up. <laughs> okay. So they go, well, they look at me, you know, what? You just told me that I could become paralyzed after this operation. And you're telling me this operation is not going to fix me up. And I say to them, you need the operation. The operation is going to allow you to then do movement therapy and the movement therapy will fix you up. Okay, that's the contract. That's the contract that I have with the patient. Because I know that if I do a spinal fusion on someone, they may get temporary relief because you instantaneously stabilize an unstable motion segment, right? But within one to two years, the adjacent segment will then start to become the biomechanical pain generator. And they will come back to see me and they'll be in pain. So I have not fixed them. The disease is still present. They have not been cured at all. Whereas when I stabilize a segment, say L5S1, and then they do movement therapy for eight weeks after surgery, now they've eliminated movement dysfunction. The adjacent segment is, is, is stable and it will be stable for the rest of their life. We've then cured them. They don't come back with adjacent segment disease. So it's almost contractual as part of the surgery. And, and the same principle should apply for, um, for any symptom-based intervention. Okay whether it's a uh, ibuprofen, uh, an interventional block, or whether it's a spinal fusion. Right. I, li I like that approach. I think that's more of a, an approach, uh, I, Amy, that you would agree. I think that a lot of the physiatrists um, that we know that we take. Um, so this is great. David, thanks for coming on. I want to wrap this up by um, just letting people know again where they can find you. And I'll put everything in the show notes. But where can physicians, first of all, 
um, find you who are looking to get involved? And then how about yes. just if someone has back pain in general, like a, let's say like, you know, an athlete or patient, where can they find more information? Okay. Um, I would love for people to engage and um, collaborate with what's the, most, the easiest, you know, the most lazy way of communicating, you know, on the social media platforms. Um, that's sort of what people have in their pocket. So on the, uh, you know, dare I say it, the old Instagram, um, I only, I just use Instagram for, uh, for work purposes, but it's, it's a necessary evil. <laughs> um, and, uh, and we're at Neurohab, N-E-U-R-O-H-A-B, um, uh, movement therapy. I think there's an underscore. I don't know whether you have to, I don't even know whether you have to type the underscore in or not. Neurohab movement therapy. Um, that's that's our Instagram platform for the College of Functional Movement Clinicians. Engage in that. Send me messages. You know, if you want to, if you want, if you have a case study, if you want to express a an opinion, let's let's get the let's get the um, the networking and the and the the engagement happening. I think the algorithms kind of like that type of stuff. Um, email info i n f o at fmtc.com.au that stands for functional movement training center info at fmtc.com.au um those are the main the the main uh communication uh, methods and then you know this this um this video I'll, I'll also put up on our youtube channel which is just called functional movement training center on youtube um and physicians let's just i, I want to get I want to know where you guys are, what your day-to-day -day practice is. I want you to be on our website as um, members of the, the organization. You know, we're going to register you guys as members. And then when I get a, a good membership, I can go to our quality care commission in Australia, the government body, and say, hey, this is a, a paradigm shift in therapy. This is what we do. These are our outcomes please let me have a seat at the table as a advisory committee member to put one sentence in the current guidelines, just one sentence, movement therapy for movement dysfunction, reduce biomechanical stress that causes biological inflammation, that causes pain and disability and progressive structural deterioration. That's it. Amazing. All right. Thanks, David. Awesome. Okay, thanks, guys, guys, have a great day. Look forward to talking to you soon. Yeah.